Welcome to the Star Love Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Beck, the Oracle in New Orleans, founder of Intermakeup Astrology. To learn more about what I do, visit intermakeup.net. And this evening, I'm happy to welcome Alex Boxer. Alex is a data scientist who has a PhD in physics from MIT and also degrees in the history of science and classics. He is the author of A Scheme of Heaven, The History of Astrology and the Search for Our Data Destiny, published earlier this year by W.W. Norton and Company, which is earlier this year is 2020. And for any astrologically inclined, it's 8 p.m. Central Time in New Orleans, November 18th, 2020, if you want to run a chart. Alex describes the book as, quote, a curious skeptic's guide to astrology told from a data science perspective, end quote. And I found Alex through our alma mater, Yale University. And after thinking to myself, is anybody except me in all of Yale world doing astrology in any form? <laughs> so typing the word astrology into the alumni network search engine, Alex came up and I was immediately interested and grateful to have found him. I'm grateful because far too often science and astrology engage in a death match with capital S science claiming there is no validity or more importantly, relevance to the exploration of this scheme of heaven. Astrologers respond like the powerful cardinal turning points of the zodiac that critics are categorically wrong. Perhaps that's the key word, the root of categorically category. The question emerges that in a scientific age, in which category should we place astrology? Is there a place for astrology for people who are skeptics? Alex's books suggest that there is, and that regardless of what one thinks of astrology, it is absolutely worth exploring for the sake of history, science, the arts, and how the consideration of the heavens paved the way for, among other things, the modern approach to data science. Beyond all the reasons for stepping into the stars, let us all agree that the exploration of astrology surely yields its own rewards. Thank you, Alex. How is it going this evening? It's going really well. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, wonderful. So, wow, you have quite an educational background. So tell everybody a little bit about your background in classics, physics, and the history of science. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, at some level, it's a little embarrassing to, to sort of list that laundry, laundry list. But on the other hand, for a book about astrology, I actually think it's important because mm -hmm. astrology combines all these things together. And I, and I thought it was important to say that, you know, I'm not just approaching it from a, a data science or, or a science angle that, uh, you know, I, I see this as a, a mix of all of these elements. And, and to be honest, one reason I uh, had such a love writing the book, and I, and I hope that comes across in, in my writing, is that in a strange way, the topic of astrology combines these things, which I've been interested in my whole life, namely math and science on the one hand, but also uh, history and the history of science and, and language on the other hand. So mm. uh, as uh, there's there's a decent amount of personal detail in the book just because what would astrology be if we're not sort of examining mm -hmm. our own lives? So um, I, I was born in Tucson, Arizona, which honestly is a fantastic place to grow up to, to for many reasons, but in particular for seeing the night sky. Mm -hmm. And just sort of always fascinated by by astronomy and stars and planets, um, but yeah, uh, went on to pr pursue a, a degree in physics. Uh, did a, did a doctorate in physics, actually in in plasma physics, uh, which could be called space physics, studying uh, a lot of the the 
physics of the sun and mm-hmm. the radiation that the sun's putting out. So this whole idea of uh, cosmic radiation and the idea that you know, space isn't really empty is, of course, something that uh, I'm very familiar with. And and again, just uh, throughout my life, almost as a hobby, very interested in classical languages, in particular Greek and Latin. Mm-hmm. And so uh, being able to con- combine all these things, which uh, I think astrology does, it just was a real thrill for me. And And again, like I said, I hope that sort of enthusiasm and, and love for the subject comes across in, in the book, even though, as you said in the beginning, and, and, and it's worth pointing out, I'm, I'm, I myself am an astrology skeptic, uh, but that doesn't mean I don't think that it's that there's value in it and that it's a, a, a beautiful subject to explore. So at what point did you, because you talk about this in the book, astrologer and astronomer for several hundred years those words were interchangeable and analogous but at what point did you you know you're looking at the stars you know you're younger did you start to get interested in what we now know as astrology so that also you know, that, that does in fact go back to tucson and i talk about this in the book um i, I never took astrology seriously let's say growing up but i happen to uh, have the great fortune of having an uh, an astrological twin so mm-hmm. in, in we didn't meet until we were in high school, but uh, mm-hmm. one of my one of my closest friends, uh, it, it turns out that we were born in Tucson, uh, same day, same year, same hospital within eight minutes of each other. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we've we've stayed in touch ever since. And it's always been fun to kind of, uh, you know, talk about how uh, similar our lives are. And so it's always made me wonder, um, you know, maybe, what what maybe that maybe there is something there. Um, and I never had really, uh, thought to explore it until, until, well, I thought to explore it, which is where the book comes from. So essentially a couple years back. So what, okay. So, you know, there's a lot of different thinking about what that is, what that moment of astrology is between two people. So you have this essentially the same natal chart. So a lot of it would be the same, um, you know, you write in the book that because, you know, your friend, I think you said you were in the same Latin class and in, in your yeah. high school or yeah, and th- your life trajectory followed a similar path. However, you also say that's, a, you know, not a sufficient sample set to really make any sort of definitive scientific claim. However, it's quite beautiful. I mean, symbolically, you know, you have the same chart. There's a similar life trajectory. Um, you know, it's not so much perhaps that every transit would work exactly like you know down to the t but in those moments there might be something beautiful that you can connect with your friend and that that actually can be a basis for astrology as opposed to trying to do science on it i mean this is how i i find it works we were just talking before we got um recording this but you know, I had a friend come over the other day and my the moon, transiting moon, entered my 11th house of friends. And, you know, she's a slightly older woman, I guess in her 50s. Um, and she also had moon earrings on. So there's obviously every time the moon hits my 11th house, a female older friend does not come over. Yet in that moment, there's something very beautiful about it. And that's what that's, I think, the path for my for my opinion, the pathway forward for astrology. Well, but, you know, I, I wasn't um, I wasn't actually planning on, on on quoting directly from my book, but you're the way you phrased that actually just reminded me of, of something that I, I did write in the book. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at it right now and I, I, it, what I write is that uh, regardless of whether 
astrology has distilled any truth or not, what seems clear to mm-hmm. me is that it has bottled up a certain type of magic mm. that has proven time and again its ability, its ability to get us to stop and think about our connections to the wider universe. Against, right. a back, against a backdrop of indifference, this is some magic indeed. And, and, mm. and so, you know, right, like even with, with your friend and, and with my friend, uh, I, you, just even having that astrological language allows us to kind of have that conversation about, you know, what, the ways in which we are connected. Right. And, you know, I, I'll, if you don't want to read from your book, I'll read from you. This is the <laughs> intro. To, do the stars and planets really have something to tell us about the cycles of history, the secrets of love, the reasons your last job was no longer right for you and why everybody born in May is so incredibly amazing? Astrology's unflinching reply is yes, 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 and definitely yes. Modern science has flatly rejected astrology's claims uh, but this hasn't hobbled astrology's charms. Let, and then you go on to say, let's leave a so, let's leave to one side for a moment all the arguments about whether astrology is wrong or right or still wrong, even when it's sometimes right. <laughs> I'm here to make the case that astrology is fascinating and still tremendously relevant as a challenge to what we think we know and why we think we know it. And th- this really gets into the book, you know, the the trying to know things. We're human beings. We're trying to you know, test evidence against, you know, reality and what, what just, what the hell's going on in this world? So at some point you became a data scientist. When did you, when, um, when did that happen? I would say it happened uh, shortly after I, I, so I, I, I left MIT with a, with, with my PhD. And then, you know, the question is, well, what do you do mm-hmm. next? And um, I loved what I did there, but that sort of felt that, you know, I, I wanted a new adventure and was just really interested in, um, I don't know, kind of putting, you know, putting all this like math and data, uh, data, data chops mm-hmm. to the, to the test. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and end up doing a, a several jobs. And, you know, I think that w- when I began, uh, the term data science, I, I don't even think I would have ever heard of it. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's sort of a new term. It's not a term that, that I particularly liked, you know, I always wanted mm-hmm. to describe myself as a physicist. But it's certainly true that uh, in my current work, I don't do physics. I'm not there, you know, in a laboratory doing physics mm-hmm. experiments. You know, I'm I'm crunching numbers. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, uh, data science is simply just a, a a new term for, you know, maybe what in the past would be called a quant or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a boffin or, you know, a number cruncher. You call it whatever you will. But this idea that, uh, you know, there are folks out there who happen to like numbers, happen to like data and can uh, possibly give you insights and tell you things that that other people cannot mm-hmm. and you know what does this remind you of it reminds you of uh, astrologers who are also mm-hmm. uh, certainly in a historical context being asked to look at data uh, being asked to apply their mathematical skills to interpret the data and then from their calculations somehow uh, come up with a very you know human answer to a human question Mm-hmm. And that it was that sort of connection that that you know one of several that kind of got me thinking along these lines about uh, you know what what are we really what were astrologers really doing in the past and mm-hmm. what are we doing in this current moment you know where uh, data science and algorithms are are tremendously in vogue and you know you can read every day uh, in some magazine or other you know some uh, very hyped up claim about you know, what artificial intelligence is going to be able to do or what it knows about us or, you know, what it can predict about us. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
uh, it, it's 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 a world in which it seemed to me that uh, you know take away the planets and the stars uh, a very very similar set of people filling a very very similar need um mm -hmm. my, my basic thesis in the book is that um astrologers were the quants and data scientists of the ancient world and that um, mm -hmm. those of us who were enthusiastic about the promise of, of of numbers and data to tell us things about ourselves and our world would be well just to to, to stop and and appreciate that others have come this route before mm -hmm. and, and i think that this is um to me was a great leaping off point because it'll it actually is a lens through which we can focus both backwards and forwards. On the one hand, mm -hmm. it, it changes uh, the story of what astrology was and and what its contribution is to the history of science and to the history of of our of our of our human story. And at the same time, I hope it gets us to think about, you know, what are we doing today with uh, all these predictive forecasts and modeling, and uh, are we mm -hmm. as 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 consumers of data, um, you know, are, are we any more sophisticated uh, mm -hmm. than, than we've been in the past, or or we really is it really just that this demand for numerical forecasts is just so strong, and our our pattern matching senses are so strong that um, we we are just asking to be seduced. So, you know, this is what you write quite clearly. Our brains have become exquisitely tuned to recognize the shapes of people, animals and other objects meaningful to our daily lives. You know, again, like the constellations, you know, you, you're looking up if you see, uh, you know, the constellation Leo, you know, it doesn't really I mean, very, very loosely looks like a lion, but you're not seeing like a, you know, a, <laughs> like a picture of a lion. But in when what occupies our field of view defies any discernible pattern, we tend to foist these same shapes onto otherwise amorphous scenes such as cloudscapes, rock formations, or stars in the sky. So, you know, we want, you know, we want to see patterns. And, you know, you made me think of uh, Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream. I just have to read this, you know, because I love Midsummer Night's Dream. And there's a little bit, you know, about knowing the language of astrology to interpret uh, Shakespeare or works or Chaucer, because they, you know, these, um, you know, men were learned in some of the astrological arts, even if it's not, you know, they weren't exactly calculating everything to a T, but, you know, this is act five, scene one from Midsummer Night's Dream. That is the madman, the lover, all is frantic, sees Helen's beauty in a brow of Egypt. So there you go. The poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, as we're doing. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Such tricks hath strong imagination that, if it would but apprehend some joy, it comprehends some bringer of that joy, or in the night imagine some fear how easy is a bush supposed a bear? You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about, just quickly, I was thinking about this earlier, the bringer of of that bringer of joy, that's Gustav Holst's The Planets. The uh, 100%. Jupiter. And so you know, I did, did he, I, did Holst, did Holst must have known that, right? Uh, I don't know. That's a fascinating Maybe question. Not. I will say that uh, when writing this book, yeah. I, I I was listening to a lot of Holst. Um, I just mm -hmm. had, that was, that was, that was a soundtrack that was, 
uh, I had a lot of music that I was listening to when, when writing it, but that was one of the big ones, in particular Jupiter. Bringer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're starting to talk about this. It is extraordinarily easy to misinterpret data. I mean, when you think of, okay, you know, I'm throwing myself in the lot of astrologers. We really got it wrong. We, You know, the, the sun does not rotate around the earth. So it's very easy to misinterpret reality based on the narratives that we tell ourselves. So what are some, you know, just off the top of your head, what, what do you see as some ways that, I mean, this is such a broad question, but data gets misinterpreted all the time. What are some ways that you see, especially as you say, like data science, these terms, you know, they're hot terms. It's like now it's I mean, I think you you don't even have to really think very hard. I mean, just look at the um, look at the last several election cycles and and polling, which you know has this veneer of being you know very very precise and, and quantitative, and and each cycle um, you know tends to be off more and more. Uh, you know, you can look at economic forecasts the same way, uh, but maybe even a better example mm-hmm. would be, um, you know. What uh, I guess I feel like we in what's interesting about our modern time is that we all sort of sign up to the scientific package that you know we are rational and we should you know make our decisions based on based on science, but that's kind of where the agreement ends. Uh, there's just because you present an <laughs> <Right>. idea <laughs> wrapped up in 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 numbers and charts and figures doesn't mean that it's somehow right. And so if you look at uh, even mm-hmm. you know. Uh, the forecast for what we were supposed to do with coronavirus, you know, how is mm-hmm. it going to spread, you know, this, that, or the other thing. Essentially, people are making, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't envy them in, in this position, but people are making tremendously consequential decisions uh, based on somebody's computer algorithm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, as somebody who's, who's let's say, uh, you know, seen how the sausage is made in many cases, uh, you know, you can have a, a a really terrible algorithm and a really terrible forecast gussied up with some fancy graphics, and people will 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 eat it hook, line, and sinker. And it just sort of gets back yeah. to this point of I just don't think that we think so much as data consumers that we mm-hmm. we we see data and we think it's you know all equal quality. But, you know, as we're exposed to this more and more and as it's going to have more and more of a consequence in in our in our societal life and our daily lives and our personal lives, you know, it'd be nice if we, let's say, could get a little bit more a little bit more savvy about, hey, just because there's a study, you know, what does that mean? Let's, you know, the one thing I, I mentioned earlier that I guess I would describe myself as a data scientist now and I've, I've made my peace with the term. And the one thing that that I like about the term is that I think it gets the order correct, that uh, the, the data is much more important than whatever fancy tricks we might do with it. You, you mm. all the fancy tricks in the world, but if the data is junk, it's not going to, you know, it's, it's not going to help you. So mm-hmm. really just high quality data, uh, which again is the job of science, the job of, uh, you know, what makes good science is usually that somebody has spent a lot of, uh, a lot of effort to very, very carefully collect data. That's, that's a- okay, so 
So essentially, you talk about markets, and this is not financial advice, but there's a, you know, Guido Bonatti was a famous astrologer. And very, you know, interestingly, for, for the astrologers out there, he had a lot of considerations before judgment about whether you could even take a horary chart. It was very interesting um, as far as the condition of the astrologer or whether the person was even, you know, allowed to consult an astrologer. But you actually used sort of Bonatti's algorithm to test against the market, like how he would have done but that even with he he didn't do much better than the market. However, it's not like he was that much worse than some of the <laughs> modern prediction rights. I mean, so again, it's like you you know, okay, astrologers, da, 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 da. yeah, okay, astrologers make bad predictions, but so do other financial forecasters. Can you talk a little bit about that or? <laughs> well, and I think you know, financial forecasting is the most obvious example right. where right people will pay a lot of money. And the, the the more complicated the math and the more complicated the statistics, the better. And yet mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty clear that, well, there's a great expression out there, which is that it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> you know, it's it's just, you know, if we knew how to predict the future, uh, somebody would be a lot richer than, you know, than, than they are. You know, the people who, you know, uh, are making lots of money are essentially getting it right 51% of the time. Right. These right. these these, you know, fund managers, et cetera. I mean, it's it's, it's you know, hardly I'm the first person to say, to say this, but right. If you can beat the market one year, it's almost like throwing darts. You're you're very unlikely to beat the market year after year after year. Right. So th- this is interesting, too. There was another story that uh, I read in your book about and I don't know if it was Benati, but um basically running electional charts, which is, you know, when to undertake some sort of event or even when to travel. And basically, as far as, um, yeah, it was Bonatti. As far as, you know, I guess I forget whether it was, you had said it was to, he had said whether to drive during the day or the night or this day. And he actually, he did get better than 50%. So you're kind of like, okay, you know, that's, it's not that significant, but it's something there. But then what what did you find out though, as far as maybe a more reasonable explanation as to why you should, could you explain this a little bit? Like what, what sure. was the, okay. sure. it's, so, a really, it's a really fun example, you know? <laughs> so one of the, one of the things I wanted to do when writing this book, was to um, ex- explore astrology from a, a data perspective. I wanted to explore from a lot of different angles, but but the data one was one that interested me because, um, you know, one thing that's always frustrated me is, you know, coming from a, a, a scientific background, people dismiss astrology out mm-hmm. of hand. And, right. y- you know, uh, I think the argument that, hey, something can't exist because there's no uh, we know that we know that it can't exist for you know X Y Z theoretical reason. Well, you could say the same about almost anything that's been discovered, any major discovery. You know, uh, quantum mechanics would be a, a great example. Uh, the platypus right. is another example, right? All these things are impossible until until they're not. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what I think is interesting about astrology is that it's actually fairly difficult. Uh, so it's e- it's easy to make an argu- a theoretical argument against it. It's tricky to make um, an actual data argument against it. Uh, again, right. because it's hard to find all this data, which is right. what makes our current moment in time kind of interesting, because all of a sudden now all this uh, human data is now available. Right. Um, and, and so 
I happen to like Bonatti, one, because he's generally recognized to be uh, the most influential astrologer in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. because of, you know, his book was 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 widely circulated. It was reprinted uh, when when the printing press was invented. It was printed many times, and and one thing that's uh, I like about Bonatti is that he's uh, he reads to me like uh, someone who likes to make algorithms. He he's, mm-hmm. he's very clear about the the method that you should apply, and so as you know, an interesting experiment, but also a little bit of a lark. It, I, I took his advice and turned it into a computer program. And so you mm-hmm. mentioned the one about, you know, stock picking. And then uh, there was another example, which was, you know, when to go on a journey. And, and, and part of the, the trick of, of, of the book was, well, you know, again, I, I had to match these questions up with someplace where I knew there was good data. And so it, one of the actually really excellent sources of data that you can actually time to you know specific times and places um unfortunately happens to be uh car accident data uh fatal mm-hmm. car accident data the the national mm-hmm. highway transportation safety board has been keeping this data for for several decades and it's extremely mm-hmm. detailed and you can you know you can get the accident to the specific latin lawn and down to the minute in many cases and so this was something i wanted to try and i was looking for um you know, advice from Bonatti about, you know, when when would be a good or bad time to, to take a journey. And Bonatti's uh, advice is, um, like a lot of astrological advice, it's very, very complicated and very mm-hmm. contingent on mm-hmm. a lot of specific mm-hmm. conditions. But one uh, one thing uh, that I, I got out of it that seemed to be quite general was you were you were certainly not supposed to begin a journey when um, the, the moon was you know, in one of the uh, the, the lower houses. Mm-hmm. And, and this was sort of part of a discussion of the houses of heaven. Now, right. uh, that just means don't, don't lower houses would mean when the, when the moon is below the horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I thought, all right, well, that's at least something I can check because I can, if I know the time, I can compute where the moon is from that location. And it turned out to my surprise that uh, <laughs> that actually turned out to be a statistically meaningful yes. uh, distinction. Yes. Um, it was small, but it was statistically it was statistically uh, quite meaningful. And it, so, you know, what 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 are you supposed to think when you when you discover that? And um, you know, I, I tried to, you know, I have, I have several uh, items like this in the book where, let's say, the knee-jerk skeptical prediction of how something might turnout was was not validated by the data um you know the data showed something different and i think it's important if we're to, you know to stay you know honest and true to the data you just have to report what it was now that being said uh it didn't take a lot of head scratching to 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 think that well the truth is when the moon is above the horizon there's actually tends to be much more ambient light in particular mm-hmm. you know on dark country roads and so um the fact that that may uh you know make it slightly more safe to drive when the moon is up than when the moon is down, you know, made, made some sense. I don't, uh, I can't say whether that's actually the case, but, um, I think I concluded that, that thought with saying, you know, well, for all, was, was this sort of very, you know, practical, practical advice, uh, somehow encoded in Bonatti's algorithms you know, right. or, or, or not, you know, who knows, but I thought it was an interesting exercise of, uh, how one might use the information that we have namely somebody who's generally quite clear like Bonatti and modern data to, to kind of actually sh- shed light on both um, 
an ancient practice and, you know, a, a modern question and a modern use of, of how we look at and interpret data. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, there might have been sort of Benadi was like wrong or whatever, but then he was right. <laughs> or some, you know, it's sort of one of the examples of what we were talking about before in the on the first page of your book. Like even he got it right, and there might have been some sort of explanation or reason, but who knows? I mean, may, you know, maybe he was there was something there that he could perceive. You know, it's a, maybe a stretch to think that, but still, it's it's possible. For all um, we know, uh, astrology is encoding a lot of you know very practical advice in 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 these you know otherwise. Ab- obscure algorithms who knows well right and that's okay so the title of the book is a scheme of heaven and that comes from william Lilly, the famous astrologer so when you're talking about practical stuff you're talking about this scheme of heaven that distills the sky essentially down into horoscopic astrology so what what did william Lilly mean by scheme of heaven and what why did you select that title for the book well, I selected the title because I think it's just a beautiful phrase, but uh, mm-hmm. I, there's meant to be a double entendre. Um, I, I see a scheme of heaven in the sense that Lily meant it. Lily was referring to, you know, the graphical blueprint of, you know, where the sun, moon and stars are, you know, as a, as a, as a necessary diagram to casting a horoscope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, you know, I feel like astrology is is more interesting for the, the second scheme, let's say, the second scheme being uh, you can handle the numerical and mathematical part with incredible care and precision. But then at the end of the day, uh, a human now has to interpret that data. And whether knowingly or, or not knowingly, that's applying a, a sort of separate scheme to this information. Mm. You know, and so this ways in which um, numbers get, you know, words get translated into numbers and then numbers get translated back into words. There's, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sleight of hand that happens and that happens mm-hmm. absolutely today, too, in in realms that have nothing to do with astrology and something mm-hmm. that, you know, from a professional point of view, it's something that's very interesting to me uh, that. Right. There's this. It there's this doesn't matter how precise or careful you are in a specific algorithm, if you are uh, somehow interpreting what you're doing slightly off or incorrectly then it, it doesn't mean anything and so and, and and yet to package it up this way is very very powerful and so, yeah no absolutely and you know we'll get back to the words into the numbers numbers into the words because that's a big theme i think in your book but but this i mean you know we're talking you know, we're, we're bringing the humanities in, but also, you know, even though you don't like the term data science or, you know, or whatnot, but people, you really got to go to alexboxer.com. I mean, you're into, the, we're talking about um, the calculations and that, that you move into the houses of heaven, which are, you know, house systems, which you use in astrology. But I, I mean, this, you, you really, the, the, we're talking about ancient astrolabes. So, you, and the mathematician um, originally or meant astrologer and vice versa. So could you talk a little bit about, wow, you really get into machinery and calculations and, you know, people can go alexboxer.com and just plug in, um, you know, and see where your chart is and whatnot. And it's beautiful. But ha- had you always been interested in that kind of machinery and mechanics or? 
So that's probably the most honest um, description of, of how the book came to be in that mm -hmm. uh, I have been interested in the ancient astronomical and mathematical de device called the astrolabe for, for many years. Actually, when I think about it, it's now several decades. Mm. And so um, for a number of years, I've been you know, had been tweaking a, uh, an interactive online version of an astrolabe. So, and this is what you would, would see on my, my website. And I encourage, you know, I thank you for, for, for mentioning that. I encourage you to go and check it out. It's a lot of fun. And I think what's amazing about the astrolabe is that as I, you know, got more and more and more into this instrument, you develop this incredible appreciation for how sophisticated the mathematics and astronomy was in the ancient world. Now, uh, people may know astrolabes, uh, they're sort of these beautiful circular mm -hmm. uh, disks that uh, uh, you know, one is sort of fixed and then you have a beautiful circular disk that, that spins on top and I can tell you things about, um, you know, well, let me say that uh, I oftentimes would have a difficult time explaining what exactly the purpose of an astrolabe was and at some mm -hmm. point uh, it simply just occurred to me that the killer app of the astrolabe was astrology mm -hmm. and one thing the astrolabe is tremendously good at is telling you uh telling you uh, computing the ascendant telling you what part of the ecliptic is rising uh above the horizon at a specific time on a specific date at a specific latitude this is a very very difficult computation uh, the great astronomer slash astrologer Ptolemy um, mm -hmm. spends a lot of time, you know, trying to you know, explain how to do this calculation. It's not something uh, only only an astrologer slash a mathematician. The term mm -hmm. was interchangeable. Would be able mm -hmm. to do this. And the the sort of genius of the astrolabe is that it's able to do this simply by turning one disc over another. So not only is the astrolabe beautiful, it's also just incredibly powerful. And uh, at some point after just sort of spending years immersed in the calculations of creating a modern version of an astrolabe, uh, an online version of an astrolabe, you know, the, the problem of ancient astrology and the significance of ancient astrology um, seemed to, to, to really speak to me as, as a story mm -hmm. that had never really been told. I, mm -hmm. the, the basic idea of my book is that this connection between mathematics and science between data and science is not as is not as clear cut and straightforward as people maybe like to think that it is, um, mm -hmm. and that you know in this telling astrology is not a, a ten, is not tangential to this story. It's actually central to the story mm -hmm. because astrology had always been the most mathematical of the sciences, mm -hmm. uh, and it was in many ways looked down upon because mathematics was not seen as a proper tool to describe the physical world. Uh, mathematics and numbers dealt with quantities that were pure, eternal, and unchanging. And how could these be used to describe the physical world, which is, you know, corruptible and changing and, um, you know, all sorts of things that numbers are not. And so it was sort of seen, at least sort of in the Greek world, as like a, a category mistake, mm -hmm. that there was, you know, proper roles for mathematics and proper roles for physics and and astrologers were were um you know transgressing the boundaries of, of what proper science was mm -hmm. and, and yet today the idea that hey uh let's measure things with numbers and, and make a model uh is considered 
indispensable to science. And so in a weird way, um, astrologers get the last laugh. Yeah, and just, you know, for people when you go over to alexboxer.com, I mean, there's all there's even more. I mean, there you can hear the Torah's hidden mathematical music. There's Idols of the Cave, which is a Renaissance-style cabinet of wonders built wonder by wonder. There's tools for exploring the cryptologic writings of the medieval monk Johannes Trithis. Tri- oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Trithemius. Trithemius. Okay. Yeah, so really, I mean, there's all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, so, you know, everybody head over there. You know, this is one line that you say, while the thought of teaching, say, quantum mechanics using a textbook written entirely in haiku sounds like an exceptionally bad idea, um, poetic science books had a proud tradition in antiquity. And I, I, I want to read some of, you know, Astronomica, because this is an extraordinary poem, and really gets into maybe the why or the beauty or the just the wonderment of even doing astrology at all. This is Manilius. These things I wish to carry up to the stars with breath divine, not in the crowd, not for the crowd, do I compose my song, but alone, as if speeding atop an empty world, and free, I'll guide my chariot. No one blocks me or steers a shared course on a common road. No, I shall sing for the sky to know, for the stars to wonder, for the universe to rejoice in the songs of its poet, and maybe for those, the smallest crowd in the world, whom the heavens have not begrudged a knowledge of themselves and their sacred paths. So, wow, you know, that's Manilius going on a journey, you know, an astrological divine journey, but yet Manilius was an astrologer and there were actually proscriptions, you know, he would say, okay, this is how you do astrology. So, you know, this is something I talk about with other astrologers, but how are we to read somebody like Manilius? And then the next question towards, you know, beyond that is, you know, Manilius was also influenced by Stoic philosophy, but yet you also say that, you know, Stoic, like Lucretius and Epicurus actually have more of an accurate version of what reality actually is. So two questions there. How are we supposed to read somebody like Manilius? And maybe what can we learn from him? And then how, what did he give us? But how were Lucretius and Epicurus maybe right? <laughs> All right there's, a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. But yeah. so let, me, let me begin by saying that this idea that it's, it's sort of a shame that the sciences and the humanities are as divorced as they are today has always... Uh, hit me very close to home. I, I've sort of my my background is as sort of scattered as it is, simply because I've been interested in both, and it's sort of very difficult to to find a home um, if you're neither fish nor fowl. Uh, and so this book is sort of yes, a, a, an, an ode to a time when you know these things were uh, these things were brought together, and, and and the topic of astrology is one that is able to bring. Uh, I think the sciences and the beginnings together in a very beautiful way. Now, um, Manilius was quite interesting to me because, well, one, um, you, you mentioned Yale a couple of times, so I, I was actually a classics major at Yale. Well, I was a classics and physics major at Yale. I think I'm quite possibly the only person who ever did that. Um, <laughs> really? Oh, that's uh, interesting. Really? Wow. Are there less? I mean, it's very fascinating to me that so few people, really, that you feel like it's that few people that do that. 
Um, I mean, it's a sort of an odd combination of uh, wow. <laughs> of majors, but um, don't you think it's terrible? I mean, I, you you think <laughs> I really I think this is a, one of my big pushes, even just with what I do with astrology, that you know none of these arts have to be divorced from each other. It's terrible the disembodiment that's occurred. So I agree with so so yeah. I, I agree with that, and, and you kind of I, I picked that up when you first contacted me, and I I could tell that we would certainly agree on on that aspect. Um, so I, I was interested in Manilia. So let me, <laughs> at the risk of being even more digressive than I usually am, let me say uh, that the way the book is structured is, you know, I wanted to treat astrology with a lot of respect. And one of the ways I wanted to be respectful for it is to try to be as, as accurate as possible. Accuracy is very important to me just in general. And I so I never wanted to say astrologers believe X or astrology mm-hmm. does Y. Uh, it's just too big of a topic and it covers mm-hmm. too too long of a time period and, and uh, you know, too too wide of an area. And, and so rather my whole take on the book was I wanted to pose each chapter as almost almost a, a, an independent investigation to a question. And each chapter would sort of center around maybe one or just a handful of writers. So that way, you know, you you know modern astrologers uh, may may object to, to to something that I say uh, characterizing this that or the other thing, but I, I'm trying not to say that. I'm saying, hey, listen, you know, this is this is what Manilius is saying, and so mm-hmm. I was drawn to Manilius because I wanted to look at the question of um, is there you know what what can we really say about zodiac personality types, and this sort of uh, you know. Asked, you know, led to the question of wh- where do these things even come from? And so it turned out, to my great surprise, that the earliest, let's say, comprehensive description of astrology we have is actually this poem by Manilius. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that was a surprise because, you know, uh, astrology, um, you know, begins in ancient Babylonia. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. it's, it's very much a product of the a combination of of Babylonian and, and Greek cultures, mm-hmm. this sort of Hellenistic uh, fusing of ideas, and 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 we have uh, a number of things from that earlier period, but we don't really have, let's say, a book about astrology or how to do mm-hmm. astrology. Um, right. some, some fragments we have are, are reasonably lengthy, but the right. first sort of thing that you would classify as as you know description of astrology is this beautiful poem by by Marcus Manilius, and you know. So I actually, you know, majored in classics, and I'm interested in 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 history of science and in particular Roman science. And mm-hmm. I had I'd never read this book. In fact, uh, in in my you know small universe of people I know who who are somehow associated with classics in one form or another, uh, it would be fair to say that I don't know a single person who's ever who's who's really read this this book. It's mm-hmm. you know it's a, it's a very difficult poem. Mm-hmm. It's not it's a difficult poem not only from um, understanding it it's, it's very technical and mathematical but also the the textual tradition is 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 quite tricky too there's been mm-hmm. um you know there's been a number of 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 sort of very uh, powerful editors who have, who have come and and really tried to to hammer this this poem kind of into a, a comprehensive or comprehensible shape but uh but manilius is this wonderful poet and he's writing um not exactly the same time but maybe but close maybe maybe a generation or two after lucretius and lucretius is the poet maybe maybe lucretius isn't very famous if you don't 
you know, study Roman things or, or you know, the sort of history. But by Roman poet standards, Lucretius is very famous. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of Lucretius and many of you have mm-hmm. heard of Lucretius, whereas uh, the number of who've heard of Manilius is probably much smaller. And in many right. ways, uh, Lucretius and Manilius, um, you know, I, I describe them as sort of like a call and response mm-hmm. of, of didactic science, physics poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucretius writes first, and he writes the, the great uh, Epicurean view of the heavens and it's uh mm-hmm. or, sorry view of the the universe and that's you know uh de rerum natura on the nature of things um manilius is writing sort of the um the counterpoint which is manilius is a stoic and and uh stoics uh tend to they, they have an opposite view on, on many things as mm-hmm. epicureans do one thing the stoics uh did believe in though was a completely deterministic and fatalistic universe and this right. is one of the reasons um, why I think astrology really, really explodes in the Roman world and spreads as, as, as far as it does, because it's very, very compatible with this worldview, this fatalistic worldview that was already sort of in place. And uh, I, I guess your earlier question, I think a lot of, uh, from a modern point of view, we look at Epicurus as being kind of farsighted. He talks about atoms. He, mm-hmm. you know... Is, is very. I describe it as a, actually a uh, a Roman version of John Lennon's uh, song "Imagine," right? That, mm-hmm. Hey, listen. Yes, yes. There's no heaven. There's no hell. Yes. There's no death. These are all just yes. used to frighten you. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, just apply your reason. You know, everything. You know, don't let these people deceive you. Everything's is is, is fine. You know, it's a rational world. Uh, Manilius would also believe in a very rational world, a very mathematical world. Um, but I guess my, my point was that although from a modern point of view, Epicurus, Epicurus is, uh, is, is correct and, and, and Manilius, let's say, is not, uh, Epicurus is making these statements, but he doesn't, I would describe him as making metaphys- metaphysical statements without the physics to back it up. Mm-hmm. You, know, that the, that, you know, the idea that there are atoms is a very profound statement of the universe, but uh, there's really no way to adjudicate whether or not the world is made of atoms or not until you have developed a, a physics to really test this question in a meaningful way. And um, and so I, I, the irony I point out is that the thing that, the, the universe that Manilius lives in is a mathematical universe. Manilius is basically writing a poem on how to do mathematical equations, uh, which is one reason why it's, 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 it's can be very hard to read at times. Uh, but it's this mathematical view of the universe, this this view that for many m- centuries was embodied by by astrologers, and you know maybe you know sometimes a careful, but many times a a a, a not very careful way, um, is actually the view that has let science advance. This idea that we should be describing the world with mathematics. You know, it's very interesting. So it it comes back to this theme that we've been discussing about even if something's like, quote unquote, wrong, it gives you something really great. And, um, you know, it's there's an analog here. And one thing that, you know, I think is really great that you bring up that, you know, we don't have everybody's accurate birth chart. So there's no way that we could really test if this Ptolemaic moment of birth is accurate. But Regardless, let's say, um, you know, because one of the things we 
um, th probably the largest data set that we do have that was studied was the Gokulan data. And people might know this, that it was the purported Mars effect that certain planets, if they were in certain positions, might indicate athletic success or scientific success. But the interesting thing about Gokulan was that was the only thing that was found and it's debated and, you know, whatnot. But but the horoscope fell down itself. So in a sense, you know, a lot of horoscopic astrology with the Gokulan data fell by the wayside uh, through that test, which sort of cuts against Ptolemy, um, which is I find very interesting. But similarly, in another sense to, you know, Manilius, it gives you something and it's an extraordinary poem, but there, you know, there's something to knock against it, even if it gets you somewhere. I find it very interesting. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I just uh, you mentioned the the, the Gokulans. I don't know if, if this would be a good opportunity to to, to discuss that. Well, I do, yeah, quickly, but I want to get a little bit to Ptolemy because Ptolemy's you know the father of modern astrology, and it's very interesting. You know, a lot of people will know you know Ptolemy, um, and but you know, well, I just briefly, who was Ptolemy? And then I, he did some fun stuff with. We'll get into a couple things just briefly, but who was Ptolemy, and what what did he give us? So I think. Certainly coming from a, a science background, I think Ptolemy is most well-known as the astronomer who writes the preeminent textbook on astronomy in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. He's he's living in the, the second century AD. He's living in Alexandria in, in, in Egypt. And he writes a book. Um, it's called the, uh, the the Mathematical Syntaxis, but it's known as the Almagest, uh, which provided the mathematical background that you would need in order to compute the positions of the sun, moon, and planets at any time in the past, present, or future. So it's this comprehensive astronomy. And it, of course, is based on an, an Earth-centric uh, universe. And so in the scientific revolution, Ptolemy becomes sort of the the, the straw man who gets mm -hmm. overthrown by by Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo. Right. And the, the idea that it's not the, the Earth that's at the the center, but rather, but rather the sun. Now, um, I I don't know if I would describe Ptolemy as, let's say, the father of uh, of astrology. But I think what's what's fascinating and that a lot of people don't know is that astrology is also uh, Ptolemy is also the author of a very very influential astrology book. Uh, and so these books, he's also the author of a very influential geography book. And so these books <laughs> well, go down is, through right, history. Right. And, and, you know, because Ptolemy is the preeminent astronomer, astrologer, geographer of, of antiquity, all these things come together. And I think it, it, uh, it helps astrology actually maintain its scientific right. status for many years. Yes. Right. But um, I, I would say that, you know, in many regards, Ptolemy is, is a, a more of a, a sort of a, a systematizer and a compiler. So in particular in his astrology book, He's not um, he's not asserting anything novel, or at least doesn't claim to. Uh, he's sort of bringing all, all this information together in a way which, mm -hmm. to be honest, is is not terribly helpful. Uh, you know, that was that was one of the books that I read very very closely because one of my chapters is, is is a Ptolemy chapter. You know, he mm -hmm. what, what right. better author to 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 really zero in on than Ptolemy because there's so many important things to say about him. But his astrology book. Um, seem to me uh it's a little bit at a high level and so it's right. not clear that uh for for a very practical art 
it's not clear how useful or how used it would have been. It, I, I describe it as uh, sort of trying to um, teach you how to cook without providing any recipes. It's, um, I think in many re respects, it, it provides uh, a sort of philosophical cover and a philosophical foundation and certain, certain guidelines that people are always turning to. Uh, mm -hmm. However, I think there are other books from the time period and, and, and this is to say that I spent a lot of time also focusing on uh, one of the chapters is focused on Vettius Valens, mm, right. so much, which is a much more practical, uh, oh, mm -hmm. this is how people actually did astrology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Ptolemy, it's interesting because I, you know, his famous book, the Tetrabiblius, it's a, you know, huge, but um, you get into that he was engaging in anthropological ethnology, so he, you know, was doing the astrology of regions and even how, you know, I guess cultures, you know, the anthropology of these, you know, areas and peoples. And you actually say Ptolemy was the great grandfather of the book Guns, Germs and Steel, which people will remember uh, Jared Diamond, essentially why do cultures kind of rise up or why, why do some succeed? Um, so and then also uh, Ptolemy did kind of a proto-homosexuality index like sort of I know it's like the, the analogous to the modern it would be the Spartan gay travel index I mean very interesting stuff I mean trying to determine things by region I what he was trying to do I mean I'm not, it wasn't really accurate I think but it, it was as he tested it but it kind of interesting stuff that he was doing so you know again all of my all of my chapters were sort of uh, an attempt to combine uh, both a historical examination and and a modern data examination. Mm -hmm. And so with with Ptolemy, there was never any question in my mind what I wanted to do. One because he's not he's, he's generally not very specific. He tends to be very general, but he has this wonderful section in his book uh, where he's talking about general astrology, and he goes through uh, I, I counted them all. I, I think it's seventy three regions of the ancient world and describes how, how the inhabitants of these regions, their, their sort of ethnic type is determined by which, you know, planets are, are ruling over them. And so he has this elaborate system where he can sort of uh, stereotype everyone in the world simply based on where they're from, because, mm -hmm. well, that's where the, the planets are. But I, I, I thought it was a great section, one, because it's colorful. But two, it's actually, I think, classic just undistilled Ptolemy because he actually it's the one section in all his writings where he's combining his astronomy his astrology and his geography the, mm -hmm. the three things that he really makes um, significant contributions to in this one section and so you know this idea that uh and he does spend a lot of time you know in sort of a uh, a prurient, uh, you know, I don't know, old man kind of way, like talking about the the sexual habits of of these groups, which of course right. makes it interesting. And so, right, this, I think, one, it's a fascinating opportunity to think about you know different attitudes that that we have, uh, ancient times versus modern times, and it was also great because I can test. This was something I could like, you know, uh, spin up in a, in a computer and um, mm -hmm. look at modern data and mm -hmm. sort of quantify it. And um, this was my opportunity <laughs> to to sort of demonstrate that, um, you know, you can do something fun like a, a linear regression, which is sort of the bread and butter mm -hmm. of all uh, 
you know, data science analysis and, and, uh, it can, it can look really nice, but what does it, you know, what does it mean? Right. Without, mm-hmm. without, without context, um, and without, you know, sort of applying your brain in a better way, um, you know, these sorts of lines on charts don't, can, can, can mean whatever you want. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, you're, it's so cool. I was, you're dealing with the moon and car crashes, the markets, you're dealing with the Spartan gay travel index and applying these ancient astrologers to all above. So we'll get to the Gokulam, but you know, this is, um, I have two questions and I always ask everybody who comes on the show and pretty much everybody has a different answer, but what is astrology? How do you define astrology? Because, you know, as you say, it's such a broad, I mean, maybe that was your answer that it's such a, it's been so many things over time, but how, how do you define astrology? Um, I, I just think very simply, astrology is the attempt to correlate right, okay. happenings on the happenings on the earth with happenings in the heavens. Okay. And, okay. Right. and I, yeah, maybe maybe I'll just leave it at that. And yeah. well, I mean, you can certainly have a minimalist yeah. and maximalist interpretation of this. Uh, and and I think you know it's important to stress that we know that the sun and the cycles of the sun uh, influence the Earth very strongly. We know that the mm-hmm. the moon influences the Earth very strongly. It's not. It's, it was hardly crazy to think that you know maybe the positions of Mars and Jupiter might have uh, you know some sort of influence here. So, uh, you know, people were looking at this data and the way to answer this question was through mathematics and data. People may have considered it, you know, a little bit kooky at the time, but it turned mm-hmm. out that that approach to looking at the world turned out to be incredibly, incredibly powerful. And it's shaped and, and it's, it's absolutely, I think, it, it's not correct to say that the mathematical view of science doesn't go directly through astrology. You talked about the, you know, you sort of jokingly say the fate of writing this book, but what do you, th- and this is an age old question, what do you think about fate, free will, free choice, determinism? I mean, you talked about the you know, Stoic philosophy being deterministic, and it's kind of interesting because you have a, somewhat of an interesting take on this because Stoicism is again sort of giving us this modern data science, but then Lucretius, you know, and Epicurus not necessarily having maybe the prototypical scientific framework, but then kind of getting it right. So what it, I, I wonder if you have an interest, you must have an interesting kind of <laughs> take on this. I know, yeah, it's like, you know, Starlove podcast solves the, you know, age old question, but, but what do you think? So, so two thoughts that I think are, are worth pointing out. So one, I think it's very telling to me that, um, Astrology can find uh, adherence and can be meaningful to people in a worldview where everything is uh, predetermined and fatalistic, as it was in Roman times. Mm-hmm. And it can be meaningful to people in the modern context, where I think people are open to the idea of like uh, of spiritual growth, transcendence, and 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 that we are the masters of our fate. Mm-hmm. And and so to me you know, this this says something very clearly, which is that there's something deeper going on uh, with why people are engaging in the world in this way, that you can actually go to your very deepest metaphysical foundation and throw mm. it out the window, and yet you're going to keep this um, this way of looking at the world. And so I, I, think it, I think that is an indicator that there's, that there's something deeper going on. Um, mm. 
as for me, uh, you know, I think that uh, the the one of the important <laughs> lessons maybe from science is that it's it's good to it's good to pose well posed questions questions that you can answer, <laughs> and so um, I don't I, I I certainly don't live my life as if it's predetermined, but mm-hmm. you know I don't I don't know and I will never know and it doesn't bother me. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I had um, it's funny. I had another. I had an astrologer on the show. Um, his name's Terry McKinnell, and he actually he brought up Lucretius, interestingly enough. And I asked him this question, and he's a guy from Australia. I wonder if Ptolemy had him on his index, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but he, he you know he I asked him the question. He's like, you know, I don't care. I love my life. It's an old Christian question. That he, so so it's sort of in a roundabout way, similar to what you're saying. It's not how you live your life. Who knows? But um, you know, maybe a little bit of both, but who, okay. So moving on, you wanted to, so you wanted to talk a little bit about the Gokuland data, because that's, that's very interesting. Um, you know, there, just as a little aside, I don't think anybody's ever talked about this, but basically a couple of the things, he was actually an athlete himself and he was a scientist and he had Mars, um, or the, the, he was investigating, he was like Mars would be like culminating and then Saturn having just come over the horizon. So it was like Saturn in the 12th house, which can be a difficult house, and then Mars. So I just, you know, it's, I just sometimes wonder symbolically if there was something about Gokulan, he, you know, again, like, you know, just coming into, you know, my awareness now with like Manilius, this poem where it's like a very personal journey, this exploration of all of these things and where they're, you know, you know, um, you know, Gokulan tragically took his life, but whether there was something, because I think he, um, if I recall, he stopped being able to play tennis or something. And like, you know, I mean, you know, my gosh, slogging through all that data and all those charts and, you know, really years and years. um, I, I wonder, it's just I can read symbolism into some of the findings about scientists having that Saturn or, you know, the Mars being of eminence with athletes, which was him. And those are traditionally considered the malefics. So I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. But, you know, poor Gokulan. I mean, it, it seems like it was, he really put a lot of work into all that. And um, but anyways, so, yeah, he does seem like a tragic case. And so, yeah. well. Let me say that all I want, what I have to say about the Gokulans is mainly by way of apology in that uh, I don't treat them as uh, as thoroughly as, I think it's, it's actually one of my regrets with the book that I don't um, devote a chapter specifically to the Mars effect because, um, you know, again, each one of my, each one of my chapters is an attempt to look at an astrological idea with modern data. And I think I underestimated the extent to which every astrologer living today would ask me about the Mars effect. And uh, I'm interested, it was something I I researched quite a bit, and I'm I'm interested in it. And the reason that I didn't do it is, one, um, I think it it would be getting really quite into the weeds for, Mm -hmm. I think, the non-astrological reader, although maybe most of the people who read my book are astrological readers. Um, (laughs) Right. But... The main reason I didn't pursue it is um, is important to the story, which is that it's actually extremely difficult to get a relevant data set. Uh, namely, in order to test, you know, that level of, of horoscopic astrology, you really do need yeah. a large data set of birth dates uh, known fairly precisely, preferably to the minute, at least to the hour. Now, let me say, yeah. though, that as somebody who's who's researched, you know, it to the extent that I can, 
uh, I find the the Mars effect to be uh, extremely impl implausible. Rather, and, and I know that it, there's just so much ink spilled on this, it seems to me uh, fairly clear that he legitimately found a statistically significant um, correlation in his data. Yet this alone is, is and, and so I think you know, so much of the argument was whether or not this was statistically meaningful or not. And I think this is so important for my larger story of how uh, statistics is abused all over the place, not just in, in, in astrology. That here was an astrologer, uh, or he never called me, he called himself a psychologist, uh, right, using, he, he, using yeah, the techniques yeah. of statistical science and saying, hey, listen, I, I did everything you asked. Why, mm -hmm. why now is this not accepted? And I think that's a, uh, and, and so, right, I think it doesn't point to his, his effect being real, rather it points to the sloppiness with which, you know, our society has sort of come to understand how to use statistics. Statistics isn't even all that, isn't even all that old, right? I mean, it's really only from the early 20th century that this even exists as a field. So the idea that Gokulan could go through his data, and he says this very clearly, that he's looking at all sorts of possibilities. Right. Uh, this is what is tend to be called data dredging, that if you apply enough statistical tests to your data again and again and again, you're going to find one that, that, that turns up. That's just simply the nature of the way these tests are set up, that one out of every N are expected to give you a result. Okay, right. but that, that doesn't mean that, you know, um, that's not a, a, a not valuable thing to do. Rather, the thing that you're then supposed to do next is what everyone then try to do is like, all right, well, let's look at Let's not go back again and look at the same data set again and again and again and again. Let's look at a new data set and see if this, uh, we can see this result again. Right. And even Gokulan looked at a new data set. He looked at people born after 1950 and he said he, even he couldn't find it. And he said, ah, well, this must be because of, you know, the rise of cesarean sections. Well, okay, maybe, maybe not. Uh, you know, in, in, in America, they looked at this data with, um, with athletes and they couldn't find it. And then everyone complained about, well, you didn't use the right people. And this, these arguments very quickly descend into uh, what would be called stacking the deck you know, that you have to get, you know, hey, I'm going to, you're not looking at the right sample set. Uh, and, and, and so, right, it's a way, it, there's, there's so much um, that's not persuadable in the Mars effect that I kind of just didn't want to get into the weeds. But the real reason is I would need a real data set like that. And even today, you can't get that because of privacy laws. Right. So essentially, and this is, I had mentioned this earlier, but what I love about your book that, hey, let's leave the door open. You know, it's, it, and it's, it's true. I was talking to one of my mentors and, you know, it's like, okay, take, for example, there's a technique in Hellenistic astrology, which is called perfections. And I use this in my practice and it, you know, it goes well. Um, but everybody who has a second house year perfected, that's going to be money. Well, I mean, it would seem implausible. Off, okay, but maybe we could test that if we have enough charts. But, um, but you know, maybe it, it could be. Um, you never know. I but, actually think, you know, uh, I, I think that these things will be will be tested because, um, right, people there are enough people who will voluntarily give their birth info. And in particular, <laughs> right. I'm thinking of like astrology apps on your phone. Mm -hmm. There's been right. you know, some that have been quite popular in recent years. They mm -hmm. have a treasure trove of people's right. precise birth dates, and they can right. track them over time. And honestly, I think it would be 
absolutely fascinating to, right, to, to see what to, right. to have to, to say hey let's hey can we can we look at the data and can we um you know maybe in consultation with um astrologers or who knows what can we let's design some interesting tests right to, like maybe not to prove or disprove astrology but to maybe just to shed some light as to what right. what these things really mean so i think that'd be yeah, fun and I, and I think that 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 very easily could happen um you know in, in the next 10 years or so with all these uh very very popular astrology apps mm-hmm. right and then you know we get into you know there have been it's funny i must be a glutton for punishment but i'm really into skeptical attacks against astrology because it, it's but you know there's there was the famous humanist magazine uh attack and it was warning everybody against astrology and um carl sagan you know famous carl sagan actually didn't sign on because you know even though he was a big skeptic he also was into wonderman and was into you know, being, you know, the being bemused by the universe, if you will, and, you know, that he felt that the statement was too dictatorial. So let's say some things go wrong with science, with astrology, you know, that verve of um, sort of the attack from the magazine is maybe not the way to go. You, you know, you, you bring this up in the book. Um, it's it's sort of how I conclude the book because yeah, yeah. I just feel like it's so important and it speaks to me very deeply. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, um, I've, I've never really been a Carl Sagan fanboy. I like him. But mm-hmm. it was in this incident in particular that I admire him tremendously because mm-hmm. he's very, very explicit in, in this case and in his writings about why it's necessary uh, to have both skepticism and wonder mm-hmm. and and to me that just sums everything up about what's so beautiful about you know it's one reason why i don't i've never had any particular ill feelings like many people in the scientific world who just view astrology with nothing but disdain right uh, i mean i was drawn to my background and my and and, and to science be because I look up at the I looked up at the sky and just thought it was incredible and amazing and mm-hmm. wanted to know how I couldn't in some deep way be closer to it and if that meant knowing more about it you know that was how I was going to do it and 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 Sagan just hits the nail on the head with this and and uh, I, I actually am looking at the the page in the book and I, I have it open too if you want I'll I'll read it if you want me to. But that Carl Sagan, the great evangelist of scientific wonder, was also one of the 20th century's great proponents of skepticism is no contradiction. Personally, it's this paradoxical quality that I've long admired most in him to borrow a new age notion. Wonder and skepticism are like yin and yang, two seeming opposites that must balance each other in creative conflict because if we're so quick to be deceived by falsehoods. How will we recognize true wonder when we see it? Conversely, what is the purpose of skepticism if not to prepare our wonder when, against all challenges, what seemed impossible actually proves true? Wow, wonderful writing, Alex. Thank you. I brought this up on a podcast the other day, but some of the skeptical attacks against astrology, we think of St. Augustine or some of the Renaissance humanists. I mean, you know, St. Augustine renaissance humanists humanist magazine in the 70s they're not humanist magazine in the 70s it's not like 
really humanism. Like we're not, they didn't, you know what I'm saying? It's not aesthetically pleasing to me. Like if you're going to knock me, do it with style or do it with, you know, <laughs> Marsilio Ficino, the progenitor of the Renaissance or St. Augustine, his confessions, or, you know, if you're going to knock, you know what I mean? Have some, you know, humanistic must, you know, true humanism behind it. It's kind of my, that's a, I, I don't think I've heard too many people make that critique of skeptics. Like what a, aesthetic skepticism or like an aesthetic critique of skeptics skeptics you know yeah right i mean if, you, if you're just a skeptic uh you know that you're probably you're probably not that fun to be around but right you know it's like what something come on give me something to work with like you you know so, you know you paint or some i don't know right. but, and, but okay. and i also felt you yeah, but i also felt like as somebody who is you know is uh, by nature, very skeptical. I also mm-hmm. wanted to say, hey, listen, that doesn't mean that uh, I, I don't have a sense of wonder. So, right. I, I thought right. that, that the, you know, the, the Sagan idea that, you know, wonder and skepticism need to really work together mm-hmm. really spoke to me because, yeah, I love hanging out with, uh, you know, I love going into new age bookstores and whatever and looking at yeah. it just, just for the, you know, kind of excitement and thrill of it all, even though, you know, r- right. Like I, I, there's no reason why just because I have a high bar for like what I'm going to believe, I can't maybe appreciate um, kind of like the deeper vibe maybe that, 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 that that's there. And so. Well, how about some, I mean, you're in, my gosh, you have a whole degree in classics. What are some of your favorite uh, literary works? <laughs> is this, is this about, about astrology or just in general? Oh no, just in general. So at one point I, uh, I realized I had no answer to this question. My mind would just get lost that I, I decided, well, I better just come up with a stock answer to this question. So uh, my stock answer to the question is um, I happen to love and like deeply, deeply and sincerely love Italo Calvino. Um, and in fact, now that I think about it, the book that I love the most of his actually uh, absolutely relates to, to, to a lot of this. So um, mm-hmm. uh, he has a book called uh, Cosmic Comics. Cosmic mm-hmm. Comique, and it is just short stories, sort of science inspired, uh, but but only very loosely. And I don't know how to describe Calvino. I, I I'm not a literature person. I think he's classified as a magical realist, although I, mm-hmm. I, I you know I don't know if I want to use terms like this for someone mm-hmm. who's just so unique. Uh, but 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 yes, I, I Cosmic Comics is as always. I, I read it as a kid, and it's always stuck with me is just one of the most beautiful mm-hmm. things i've ever read um wow. so that'll be my answer to the question have you ever read have you ever, have you ever read it i've not but when you say magical realism i mean immediately think of rushdie so you know think of midnight's children or well you know um mm. it's a great work of children's literature um her and another sea stories, which is um, actually that's an interesting book to bring up now because her and another sea stories gets into if you have a a materialistic mindset that can go into sort of dark, dismal places, you lose imagination. So actually that from from a magical realism standpoint, that book um, is relevant to kind of what we're speaking about. Um, but no, I haven't. I'll have to. That's I'll definitely have to read it's that. It's such an easy read, too, because yeah. it really is just these very short, very charming stories. Mm-hmm. OK, wonderful. So a um, couple last things. Have you experienced any kind of like, why are you wasting your time with astrology or, you know, have you encountered any of that with the publishing of this book or? Um, I'll be honest, I would say the daggers I've received have mainly been from astrologers, although. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Wow. 
Although, um, you know, so many astrologers like yourself have have reached out with just so much positivity that, Mm -hmm. you know, on the whole, it's just been a a really wonderful experience. But I would say uh, my yes, I express this concern in the book that, you know, at some level, you know, maybe professionally, I I won't be able to, to, to work again if somehow it came out that I wrote a book about astrology, even if this, I'm not, I'm not endorsing astrology in any way. I'm talking about that. It's, it's, you know, fascinating and, and there's so much that we can learn by, by looking at it. Um, but, but right. Astrology, I think has such a taboo associated with it, which again, speaks to something interesting, right? Like why something that has a taboo has a power. Mm-hmm. And if it really was, um, if it was really meaningless, why do people get the, you know, get, get, get so worked up over it? Um, right. Yeah. And, yeah, and again, that's, that's, that's yeah, not yeah. to say that, that yeah. I think that there's like maybe something there, there, but rather I think it speaks to um, something interesting that's going on with us humans mm-hmm. that uh, makes it actually really interesting to, to, to look at. And, but, but yes, I think uh, the way the, just so the book has come out, I think, um, it's, I think, incorrectly marketed as an astrology book. It wasn't written mm-hmm. as an astrology book. It was written as a a popular science or history of science book. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, if but you know, I, I think it makes sense. The people who have mostly read it have been have been astrology people. They want to know what um, you know somebody from the outside might might say about it i think maybe there's been this impression that because i'm a data scientist like this is the book that is going to show that astrology is true through through data mm-hmm. maybe people are disappointed when that's not the tack i'm taking but but, mm-hmm. but yes i've i've uh i've received some some uh some anger from to your point about um why are human beings so interested in this stuff and i think you know, Manilius kind of hits that right on the head that it is this very personal journey that one engages on with astrology. It it also reminds me, I was talking with a friend and he was asking me, okay, right, you're secular atheist. I'm like, well, no, not really, because I had a friend at one point who was, again, going back to Yale Divinity School. And he was like, no, we really want atheists because if you're an atheist, then you're talking about it. And that engages the dialogue. So, you know, mm. a lot of theologians actually talk about if you're going to be a proper card carrying atheist and they if it's like atheist versus theist, then they're like, great, we're talking about it. So I'm like, well, no, it's just I, I'm doing astrology and other things. It's not a question. It's like we it's so it's kind of, you know, it's very it's, it's it reminds me of astrology. Like there are a lot of people like for and against astrology, but it's like, well, we're talking about astrology. There's something there. So. That's right. um, and but, I didn't I didn't want my book to be somehow hey, this is a uh, a debunking of astrology or this mm-hmm. is, you know, in, in favor of astrology. I just I think that's the subject is too interesting to kind of uh, maybe make it just about about that. It's it's really right. an exploration. And by the way, uh, Sagan's uh, wonderful series Cosmos was called A Personal Voyage. Mm, well, there you go. Okay, one last question. So what what is your hope for astrology and people's engagement with astrology from all different kinds of backgrounds? Uh, So my hope is that actually uh, people on the non-astrology side recognize that, one, astrologers in the past 
have made a really tremendous contribution to um, how we see the world, in particular, how we see the world with numbers. And two, I would like that all of us to to recognize that uh, we are surrounded with data and astrology is, is simply one and the oldest way in which we sort of package it and interpret it. And that, uh, you know, this idea that we are somehow more sophisticated than people have been in the past is, is, is a notion. Oh. That, you know, I, 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 I always blanch against, uh, you know, just because we have an iPhone that somehow means that, you know, we're, we're smarter or something. Uh, <laughs> Probably worse off, really. <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, and, and, and that it would be nice if, um, right, we could all kind of recognize that there's a place for, for this type of wonder, mm-hmm. um, you know, really everywhere. And that I think I, I've always, people who, who are into astrology, I, I, they, right. They, 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 they've, they've always appealed to me, right. They're, 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 they're interested in kind of putting it all out there and, and exploring the universe in that particular way. You know, I think that right as in all things you know there's a balance but i i i think it'd be nice if everyone could kind of recognize that there's just a lot we can learn from me from me from each other now that being said uh i did conclude the book with something i thought was was very fun which was trying to imagine what astrology might be like in the future if we leave earth and i mm. compute a horoscope uh from the moon for the moment mm-hmm. that ends and sort of this thought about um you know what how will astrology have to change you know in that in that in that lunar horoscope i i compute you know mm-hmm. celestial bodies in the skies of the earth in fact the earth is is an aries at that moment and you know well, mm-hmm. what is what does that mean right no one's ever ever had to um ever had to really answer that that question before mm-hmm. and um actually it, I, I sort of conclude with the idea that there's something deep in astrology because in a sense, it probably should have died off several times in the past. And yet, right. at, at none of these moments did it. Uh, in fact, it's serving, I think, such a deep need that it, in every instance, it's able to to adapt and change. And so this thought that, well, now if we're really leaving the earth, you would think that that maybe would be the final nail in the coffin of astrology. And yet, uh, as I write, um, you know, I'd be pretty surprised if astrology ever, accompany, ever accompanies us beyond Earth's orbit, but considering astrology history, maybe the only reading I can give is that astrology's destiny, whatever it may be, is one which hasn't yet been written. Mm. That's wonderful. It's funny. I was once in a while I go out and do events, read tarot cards, do astrology events. And it was I mean, this was a while ago before coronavirus. But um, there was a, you know, one of those hire a poet. And I thought this I. You know, I gave him my car, but this guy was a really wonderful poet. But we were just talking and he was like, well, couldn't you do astrology from different vantage points? I was like, yes, you know, that's a very like we could. Hey, let's do it from the galactic center. Or what would that, you know, or it's you know, you could let's do it from Pluto or what would that be? So so there you go. A poet kind of echoing what you're saying. Mm-hmm. All right. Was there? Yes. Is there anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, I mean, this has just been a really, really wonderful conversation, and, and, and I'm glad we were able to have it. Thank you so much for reaching out. Okay, thank you so much, Alex. And everybody go to alexboxer.com, and the book is A Scheme of Heaven, The History of Astrology and the Search for Our Data Destiny.
All right. So this is Dan Beck signing off from the Star Love Podcast. And remember, if you love the stars, they'll love you back. On the next episode, we feature Angela Voss. We discuss Angela's passion to activate symbolic imagination, her approach to astrological music and divination, and her transformative work as an academic bridge builder who narrows the path between outsider and insider. Thanks for listening, and please rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring the Star Love Podcast, email Intermakeup Business Manager James at james at intermakeup.net. To support the continued production of the Star Love Podcast, go to the Leave a Tip, Make a Wish section at intermakeup.net.